Today, I have the great pleasure of interviewing a wonderful actor I have admired for many years who has enriched a long list of TV classics. In The Bill, he fought fires, dodged sledgehammers, and his colleagues didn't ask Jeeves, they asked Ron. Nick Stringer, welcome to the Bill Podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Was this a nice surprise, uh, especially the way it happened, because we're chatting today thanks to Carol Drinkwater, who you worked with 40 years ago on a film called The Shout. That's right, absolutely. It was a big surprise to get the email from Carol. A pleasant surprise. Bless you. That's one of your first screen roles, The Shout. So how did your acting career begin? Had had you always wanted to be an actor? Yes and no. Uh, but, but more yes, I think. I was sent to uh, uh, boarding school. My education was uh, at a boarding school, prep school and then... Uh, a, you know, a public school. Every Sunday at prep school, so up until about the age of 10, every Sunday we had to sit down and write a letter. And many, many years later, my mum, after I'd gone to uh, my drama school, my mum showed me this letter that I'd written to her aged nine, and I'd signed it Sir Lawrence Olivier. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> so I think somewhere in the back of my tiny brain, there was a, there was a desire to be an actor. Oh, were there any acting genes in your family? No, none at all. Wow. None at all that I know of, no. Where do you think that comes from? In, in, in so, I mean, can you remember when you first felt you had the bug, as it were? Was was there a moment? Well, yeah, I mean, around, I mean, at that time, I mean, we would do a Christmas show every year. I started off as, you know, sort of third naked from the left in Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> and in my final performance, I was buttoned in Cinderella in a wonderful costume that my mum made me. Oh. Uh, but she she used to take me every year to the Bristol Old Vic to see the pantomime. You know, I saw people like Peter O'Toole and Eric Porter all in the pantomime because they were just ordinary rep actors at that time in the in the 50s. Wow. And I've, I've got a program somewhere with probably something like Robinson Crusoe, but with Peter at all playing four different parts, yeah. I think that's probably where it all sort of stems from, really. Am I right that it, it wasn't your first career path that you, you trained? No, 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 yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing is, is people who are listening to this who perhaps are uh, children of a single parent will know that you kind of reach a point where you want to try and sort of repay your mum or your dad back for the hard work that they've put in over the years for you. Uh, and so I came, I had a disastrous set of results uh, uh, in my final year of boarding school and, and left with not a single uh, O-level to my name. Uh, then went to a college of further education where I really responded to the more sort of liberal kind of teaching methods and uh, qualified um, with a, a, an ordinary national diploma in business studies. So I went on from there and I worked in the, an accounts department and, and was a, a half-trained accountant because halfway through the course, I decided to move jobs to Lloyds Bank and worked for Lloyds Bank and became a half-trained bank manager. 
Uh, and then it was, <laughs> and then it was from there. I, 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 I went home one day, and uh, my mum said, uh, "You're not happy, are you?" And I said, uh, "Not particularly, mum. No, uh, I have to say that." And she said, "What do you want to do?" And I mean, I just said, "I want to be an actor." And she said, "Well, go and do it. Just go and do it." Oh, how wonderful! How did you go about making that happen? Ah, well, I suppose it's, it doesn't sound very sort of artistic, but I decided I wanted to see whether I kind of liked the life. Mm. And uh, in, I, we were living in Birmingham at the time, um, because that's where my family are originally from. And we had three theatres in Birmingham. And I got to be a stagehand. Well, I was a dresser first, just helping the, in the costume department at the Alexandra Theatre in Birmingham. And then I moved on from there and became a stagehand at the Hippodrome in Birmingham and did, did a wonderful um, uh, pantomime with uh, Morecambe and Wise that, that year. Oh, wow. And they were great fun. They were good. They were uh, good lads. In fact, Eric Morecambe, he, he had this great idea to keep us on his side, not that he particularly was about, you know, we would have walked over broken glass for him probably, but he put in this joke about, there used to be a beer called Double Diamond, and he put in this joke about Double Diamond, and then he got his agent to write to Eind Coop in Burton-on-Trent, who made it, and said, I need some payment for this. <laughs> I need a, a crate of beer, a crate of Double Diamond once a week, please, delivered to the stage door of, of the Hippodrome. This Julie arrived every Friday, and he put it straight into the crew room, and we'd, uh, and we'd all have a beer on Eric every, oh. uh, every Friday evening. Oh, what a legend. Yeah, he was, absolutely. But as, I mean, as I say, we wouldn't be, you know, we'd have done anything for him, because he was a lovely, lovely bloke. And then from there, I went to Butlins in Filey, North Yorkshire, uh, where I was a stage electrician. I had no experience of being a stage electrician it's just that when i arrived there was me and another stagehand who'd worked at the bradford alhambra and the stage manager at butlin said um have either of you done electrics and we both said no and he just tossed a coin and <laughs> i i either lost or won i can't really work out which but anyway i became stage electrician wow and, and, yeah. and at that time uh, are we talking late 60s here we're talking, that was the summer of 1969. Wow. Cool. Summer of 1969 at Butlin's Holiday Camp. I mean, that's like, yeah. that's a film in itself right there. You know, you, you got... Oh, I tell you, there was, I mean, there was more, more went on on that holiday camp <laughs> than, than, well, you'd make two films out of it. It was extraordinary. <laughs> it's an extraordinary time. Wow. Extraordinary. God. I then then sort of drifted in and out of sort of theatre work until I went to drama school in the September of 1970. Did you have to make the leap to London? Yes, I went to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. I work in London, uh, as does my wife, and I mean, I love walking around London and imagining what it was like back in time, you know, and you can still see yeah, some of yeah. the buildings that exist, but for us now, it's all about the, the skyscrapers and the very impressive stuff, so... Paint the scene for me of, of a young man trying to make his dream come true down in London in 1970. I mean, what was it like? 
it was sex, drugs and rock and roll, basically. I mean, at that time in the 70s in London. But for me, I mean, I get off, I mean, at, the, at that time, the Guildhall, which is now in the Barbican, but at that time was at a little street by the uh, city of Westminster School at Blackfriars. And I used to get off the tube because it was the circle line. I would get off the tube at Temple and I would walk through the Temple Gardens, which you could do. And I'd go up to Fleet Street and just walk down Fleet Street. And at that time, Fleet Street was what it was. I mean, there was the Daily Express. There was the Sun. There was the Mirror in Bouvery Street. There was all of that. And then I would walk back down and that would be my morning walk to college. I mean, mainly because also I could... We, we were given voice and breathing exercises to strengthen our, our breath control. And I would use that walk to kind of do that because what you would do is you would, you would breathe in for five paces, breathe out for five paces, hold for five paces, breathe in. Do you see what I mean? I mean, yeah. you, you were, it was like you were exercising a muscle. And in fact, you are. It's called your diaphragm. So I would use that walk to do that so that I would be ready to start my day at college. The Guildhall is run and by the City of London, and uh, we had um, and it was a wonderful building, marvelous building, and it had two huge staircases, and in the middle was the concert hall, and you would walk up the stairs, and you could hear the college orchestra practicing, rehearsing. You would walk along all these corridors to get because the drama was kind of very much a second thought, I think. You know, the music college came first. And mm. um, the drama, we were right on the top floor. But that meant you had to walk through it all the past, all these corridors. And you'd hear all these musicians and singers practicing. And, and, and it was just the most creative atmosphere I've ever been in. But it was the wonderful thing. We had a lift, uh, if you didn't feel like walking. And the operator was a, a one-legged man called Brian, who'd been an employee of the City of London. And we had, we had all, they were all ex-employees of the City of London. And they were a great bunch. They were great. And they sort of greeted you every morning. They knew your names and what you were doing and all the rest of it. It was, it was lovely. Where did you stay in London? What, what were your dates? Oh, I had, a, I had a flat out at Turnham Green, which is uh, on the way out to Richmond, yeah. just by Chiswick. And uh, shared that with uh, two other drama students until the end of my first year. And then I moved to Clapham and uh, had a bed sit there with just one other drama student. Yeah. At what point did you become a, a professional actor and how was that feeling when, you, when you'd done your training and you'd made it? Well, there is a phrase that actors use to each other and it actually is the most pertinent thing. And it's be lucky. And I have been blessed with good luck because the final year of production, uh, we decided to take and do as a, a pub show in a, a pub in Soho, you know, above the pub. And of course, I mean, in 1973, that was almost unheard of. You know, I mean, there was perhaps only maybe two or three pub theatres in London at the time. We were rehearsing at Swiss Cottage and a mate of mine came in who was in the cast and he said, listen, the Liverpool Everyman are auditioning up the road. He had this big speech in the play and I was sat, I was in the scene, but I was just tinkling on the piano and I had kind of maybe sort of three lines in the whole thing. 
And, but he said, come along and do this, will you, for me? Uh, and just do that so that I can audition. And I said, okay, I'll do it. Anyway, I went along with him and he did his audition. And I got called back. Wow. And uh, did a, 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 an intensive sort of almost two-hour audition with the director of the theatre at that time, Alan Dawson. And he gave me he gave me a job at the Everyman. Wow. And when I arrived there, I mean, there were people like Jonathan Price, Anthony Scher, Pete Postlethwaite. And in our second year, of course, there was Julie Walters, Bill Nye, Nick Leprevo. I mean, you know, the list is endless. Yeah. And I asked Alan, when I got to Liverpool, I said, why did you give me the job? <laughs> and he said, because you're bald. And because we need someone to kind of play the older parts. Oh. And I thought, bloody hell. So it's not my talent. He said, no, no. That's why we gave you a two-hour audition, <laughs> was to find out that you could act. We knew, and when we found out you could act, that's when we gave you the job. <laughs> so, but that was the first initial thing was the fact that I was bald and looked older than I was. That was the start of it, because Alan went on to become a TV director and was very fatal to all the kind of guys that he'd used at the Everyman. And uh, I, I started getting TV work. I mean, not straight away, obviously, but I mean, certainly within five years of leaving drama school, I was appearing on television. Things, I think butterflies, things like that, um, crown court, that sort of stuff, you know. Early in your career, you had a memorable big screen encounter with Bob Hoskins. Oh, the long good Friday, yes. <laughs> oh, dear me, dear me. <laughs> it's a good film, isn't it? It's a good film. It's an amazing film. I mean, my dad was in the meat trade, uh, and, you know, he took me around an abattoir when I was a boy, and, like, you know, it's a scary old place when you're stood upright, let alone... Hanging upside oh, down. I mean, that's... Uh... Ah, yes. No, that was my own fault. That was, uh, <laughs> um, they rang me up. They, they, they gave me the job. And then a couple of days later, they rang me up and said, how are you doing your own stunts? And I thought they meant like a fight. And I'd done fights on... I'd done a stage fighting course. And I'd done some fights, I think, on television. I can't remember at that time. And I said, oh, yeah, no, fine. But, uh, no problem, yeah. So anyway, I turn up there and uh, and, and I'm in the costume department and um, I'm waiting to be given my costume. And all of a sudden this man walks in and he's got this harness and he says, right, Nick, put this on. And I thought, hang on, what's all this about? So he, he put this harness over my shoulders and down in between my legs. And there's this sort of steel wire coming off the bit in between my legs going down my leg. And I thought, hmm, okay. Anyway, so then the costume lady comes in, gives me my clothes, I put on my shirt and my trousers and shoes, socks and everything, but this sort of metal thing is inside my trousers hanging down. Anyway, <laughs> so I walk through on set and there's this um, stunt gaffer, the, the chap in charge of all the stuntmen, and he goes, right, Nick, this is it, and he gets this meat hook and he hangs it, he puts it through the little eye of, of the, at the end of this steel cable, and I am hoisted upside down. And I thought, hang on. <laughs> I thought this was a fight. <laughs> at, at this point, they've, I mean, you know, they've done all right. The film company have thought, you know, it's just me and six stuntmen doing this scene. There's this St. John's ambulance man. 
And I think he was doing a dissertation on blacking out or something like that. Because we were, we were all blacking out quite regularly. And uh, every time you came round, he'd be there going, so what was it like? What was it? I mean, did it go red or did it go black immediately? Or, uh, you know, how was it? How was it? And you're going, oh, you know, just go away, go away, please. We would come down off that. And I, you know what it's like. Then next door to the abattoir is where they're boiling down all the hooves and the, yeah. right? Yeah. So you know what the smell's like. Yeah. I mean, you go outside and you gag immediately. I mean, you cannot actually go out. So I spent that whole day from like half six in the morning till about eight at night in an abattoir oh. being hung upside down. <laughs> but it was, I mean, we were hung upside down. It was getting quite late in the day. We were back on our, our hooks, as it were. And the director's lining up and the cameraman's saying, yeah, I'm ready. And all of a sudden the director kind of went, Actually, do you think perhaps we could try another angle? What do you think? And the stump gaffer who's hanging next to me goes, if you don't shout in action in a minute, I'm going to get off here and f***ing kill you. <laughs> and the director kind of went, oh, fine. No, okay, action. <laughs> oh, I love it. You know, you're, you're well, not toe-to-toe him, head-to-toe, head as it were, with... With one of the you know the legendary film stars that we this country ever oh, produced, Bob, yeah. yeah, lovely, lovely man. He was he was so generous as an actor. He really was. He was more concerned that we got looked after than he was kind of, you know, being kind of pampered like the star or whatever. It was he was wonderful. But then I guess he was a, a theatre actor to begin with, and he kind of didn't assume that he. He was a star at any point. He was he was a really generous man. And how did it work back then? Because nowadays, if someone's in a film, they can pretty quickly get a scene for their show reel, or it's not long until it's out on DVD. Back then, if if a young actor is in a a very high profile film, but they they can't really show off that scene. No, they can't. No. How, how did it work in terms of profile building? Was it just a case that, that that credit would be on the resume and that would be enough to think? Because how would they know, for example, that your performance in that would make you suitable for... I mean, you, you play a wonderful gangster in Minder, for example, which which would have... I'm guessing that role would have been an appropriate fit for a casting director, but... Did, did casting directors go out and see these movies and, and keep their black book of, of good performances? How, how did it work from your perspective? Well, that's exactly, that's exactly what they were. They were. I mean, casting directors, I mean, now, as you so rightly say, there are showreels and everything. So the casting director has all of that to hand now. And in the, in, back in those days, casting directors had to be a lot more proactive in that respect. I mean, because they didn't have the, there wasn't the technology for them to access. So they had to go out. They had to go out and see theatre productions. They had to go out and see films. I suppose they would still be able to have recorded TV programmes. You know, your agent would get in touch with them and say, look, Nick is coming up uh, in an episode of blah, blah, blah. Please watch it on Thursday night. And they would either set their recorders or they'd be at home with their tin of eight beans and watch it. You know, <laughs> that would be that would be how it would. It was there was a lot more personal interface at, the, at that time. You would still go for auditions, no matter how small the part. You know, I mean, even if you had a one page scene with somebody nowadays, 
you read that page scene, you put it on uh, video and you send the link or you send it by whatever to the casting director. Uh, and that's how it's done these days. Back then, you would be called in. You would go into Spotlight in Leicester Square or the production company or or the casting director's uh, office if they had uh, facilities, and you would just do the scene, you know, and that's how it was done. How was your approach to the audition process to 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 how to, to your acting technique, as it were? You know, I mean, you're you're a very clever man. I mean, you're a joy to watch. And something I admire about you is your versatility with your, your voice and your accents. You don't ever sound like an actor doing an accent. You sound like... Oh, you, thank you. you know, it's, uh, and that's a, that's a skill in itself. But how? what, what was your process to, if you were going to go up for you know, an audition for something, did, did you walk in playing the character? Or did you walk in as Nick and, and, and read the room? Well, the thing is, I, never, I mean... I always thought it was a mistake to try and look like you thought the character should look mm. because you invariably got it wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so so I, I always just used to kind of, it would be my clothes, it would be me, the look of me. There would always be, and this is just something I learned from experience, but there would be always a little bit of chat at the beginning with the director or the producers, or the director and the producer. And at that point, you can kind of like, you know, you could just sort of slip in and say, for example, you know, I mean, I did a shoestring years ago, uh, which was set in Bristol with Trevor Eve. And I just sort of, you know, went in and sort of, uh, uh, I sort of said, well, you know, I was uh, I was sort of brought up in Bristol. So, how, how sort of Bristolian do you want this man to be? And they said, oh, not terribly. You know, he's uh, he's a sort of a businessman, so I don't think he's terribly Bristolian. And I said, okay, fine. So then you know, so when you read, you're not sort of like doing, you know, like Bristol. <laughs> you're sort of just sort of introducing the odd kind of word, you know, that might happen, might come out. That's how I used to do it. Mm. Um, I would always read the script many times, before again you see you would get the sent the script not only will you get sent your piece but you get sent the whole script which was unusual it would usually be biked over to you wherever you were or you know or to your home and you would sit and you could read the whole script so you would know where you were in the scheme of things and that was always a big help in an audition mm. because you would know you know like you would know whether you're getting angry because of something or you're not getting angry because of something, you know, or you could put your little performance, no matter how small it was, you could put it in context. Well, it obviously worked. I mean, when you look at your CV, I mean, it's a treasure trove of classic television. It's not every day I get to interview the manager of a Rover's Return. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you must have had some fun. I mean, because at that time... I mean, that is classic Corrie, isn't it? The mid-80s, you've got all the staples yeah. of that show. So, I mean, it must have been a lovely opportunity for you because you, you kept coming in and out for like over a year, didn't you? You you have a nice a nice stint sharing... Uh... With David Dacre, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was lovely. It was lovely. In fact, I think I might... I'm, I'm, I don't know. I might have, to, might have to check this, but I think I hold the record for the most number of different parts by an actor played in Corrie. I think I've done 
I think I've done five different parts in Corrie. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. Oh, well, this is good because the internet only has you down for two. So we'll have to... Oh, no, I've done more than that. I think I've done more than that. Oh, great. We'll have to fill in the gaps. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, because we've got, we got Frank Harvey, uh, the the manager of yes. Rover's Return. Yeah, the, the relief manager, yeah. And and uh, later on, uh, J- Jump Jackson. Oh, yes, the singer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, so... Oh, I thought, I thought there were some others, but, oh, maybe, I don't know, Oliver, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. Oh, no, I mean, the, the, the internet is littered with these holes, you know, so... Um, yeah, yeah, that's we, true. Before we get to the bell, I'm sat in front of my DVD collection, which you know, I've got like 600 DVDs. I, I love my classic telly. And, uh, I mean, you grace so many of them. I mean, if, if, if you wouldn't mind humouring me, because it, it just seemed like you were going from one hit, which are all still on now, you know. Uh, if you look at something like yeah. Open, Open All Hours, you know, as Neville and you, well, you're, you think you're going to sell Arkwright a washing machine, you know. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was Ronnie Barker like to work with? Ronnie was, I mean, he was just a naturally funny man. Hmm. Totally. I got introduced to him in the rehearsal room at North Acton, the BBC rehearsal rooms. And uh, Sid Lotterby, the director, said, Ronnie, come over here. I want you to meet uh, Nick Stringer, who's playing Neville. And Ronnie just went, Nick Stringer, string, string. Oh, I shall call you String Knickers. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, straight off. It was, it was, I suppose he just had a love of words, didn't he? I mean, you can see that in all his work. Yeah, yeah. And, and you've got that nice thing at that time of the way they made sitcoms where you'd do some location filming and then you'd go into the studio, you know, the shop is in studio in front of a live audience, but you've, you've done the location filming as well. Uh, yes. It's, a, yes. It's, it's that continuity element of you and David Jason, you know, making sure you're, you're carrying the washing machine the same way that you entered in on the film. Well, um, yeah, I mean, they, they, they employ people to do that for you. <laughs> I mean, there was a strange situation for some actors who appeared only in the location, but never got into the studio. You know, that yeah. was—I should imagine—that would have been quite strange. Yeah, and and you got a, a wonderful reunion with David Jason in Only Fools and Horses. Is it fair to say this is probably your most famous role as Jumbo Mills? I mean, that is. Yeah, I mean, either Jumbo Mills or the Australian man who buys the <laughs> yeah. the car. Yeah. I mean, they they they. Both kind of seem to resonate with the public, yeah. But I think only fools and horses just resonates with the public anyway, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it's it's still watched. I mean, and you get. I mean, I do occasionally. I do uh, only fools and horses conventions. Oh, wonderful! And there are people, there are kids there, you know, who who watch the videos, <laughs> who watch the DVDs of it, and it's like you think, wow, yeah. that's extraordinary. Yeah. Absolutely extraordinary. There's still, it's still, you know, the probably the most watched old sitcom of of them all. I can't imagine that there's anything else kind of gets watched as much as as that does. The gag, I mean, we obviously, you know, use use the wig gag in that when uh, Buster Merrifield oh, yes. says that's a hell of a party you've got there, son. I mean, that's yeah. that's. <laughs> Easily one of my my wife's favourite lines out of the whole run. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a great guy. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, absolutely. No, I mean, and Dave, I mean, David 
and I had a great deal of trouble in the rehearsal. It was really strange because in the in the rehearsal room, he used to have a terrible twinkle, and it would set everyone off giggling. But when we got to do it, it was he. It was like I don't know whether he how he was able to do it. He sort of switched switched the twinkle off, and we we got through that. I think either one or two takes, something like that, no more than that, which was extraordinary because in the rehearsal room, it was taking us sort of four hours to get past that point, you know. <laughs> and another favourite of ours, and we're going back up the Yorkshire now with the new Statesman. Oh, yes, yes, with, uh, with poor old Rick. Yeah, yeah, uh, which just seems so crazy to be talking about that, that legend in the past tense yeah absolutely did you know on the audio commentary for the dvd that marks and grand pay your performance a compliment they highlight you as, as as being very good in the series oh no i didn't know that that's very kind of them yeah, yeah. very kind of them ah oh. it stands up uh the new statesman i think you know it's, it's especially i mean politics is a is a is always so much ammunition isn't there but uh well, it, yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how things haven't really changed an awful lot, you know, in in, in the things that are going on in the new states. And... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, you'd recognise uh, Alan Bastard amongst <laughs> any member of the prison yeah. cabinet, really, wouldn't yeah. you? <laughs> it must have been great fun uh, in in that set, you know, the House of Lords, and you get to, you know, command the oh, scene. Oh, yeah, you know. that was extraordinary. I mean, that that because that was. It was perfect in every detail. I mean, you know, it was it was the House of Commons, no doubt about it. It was really, really, really good, and we felt like we were doing it properly. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. it was great fun. You get some great laughs in that, and and was Rick Mail similar to your Bob Hoskins story? Was was Rick Mail a similar lead in the fact that he wanted? his fellow cast members to shine on the gag front? Or... Yes, Rick, would, Rick was not like a, a a laugh hugger, you know, like one of those that sort of can't let anyone else get a laugh. No, he was not like that at all. But, of course, he came from a, diff- a completely different background. He's come through the stand-up comedy circuit. So the, the whole sort of um, doing a TV sitcom was quite a different uh, experience for him, you know. Mm. But I mean, I thought he was—I thought he was wonderful in it. Oh yeah, very good indeed. And I'm guessing the did the bill prevent you from doing more of a new statesman because you're in the first two series and then the bill because Crippin is missed in the second. You know, you always, you always miss your presence in the two series that you weren't in. No, the um, the thing that the bill cut across actually was press gang with Dexter Fletcher and Julius Fahala. Um, written by um, Siegel Moffat, yeah. I did an episode of that, and of course in the original episodes I had a moustache, but in the bill I didn't have a moustache, so they had to get a moustache made for me to uh, put on for the, for the episode of Press Gang. Yeah, no, no, the bill was... They, they decided, I don't know quite why, but they decided not to concentrate so much on that having that sort of left-wing, right-wing animosity uh, anymore in, in the new station. So it just sort of just happened, really. So 
such a lovely man. My huge thanks to Nick for sharing memories of his early days and for indulging me in recalling just a few of the classic credits on his CV. Next time we dive into his three years on the bill. Here's a clip to whet your appetite. Then afterwards I've just let the podcast theme tune run uninterrupted for a little bit. Big thanks to Johnny Fleming, a good friend of mine, and his panels Rich, Colin and Simon from their band Be Undecided. See you next time. Next time on The Bill Podcast. I think they were looking for, for certain qualities in Ron because the Met at that time had started putting these regular beat officers back on the, uh, on the street. And it was, a, it was an initiative that got put nationwide to a large extent. And it was the, one of the sort of main things I think that the writers picked up on was that it was mainly a lot of policemen who were maybe coming towards the end of their careers, you know, coming to the end of their 30 years, or maybe people who had never sort of pushed for promotion. So there was a sort of a placidity as kind of a non-gung-ho kind of attitude. 